Welcome to the Sanctions Space podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk at ACAMS. This is our new global series, which will bring you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends, anecdotes, and how the threads of the past have brought us to where we are now? Sanction space is truly global in nature, and with this in mind, we are going straight to Beijing. Joining me today is Dan Wong, a leading technology analyst. He writes on China's technology progress and how it's affected by US sanctions. So Dan, you were born in China, Canadian citizen, living and working in Beijing. You previously worked in Silicon Valley, contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. You're just really exceptionally well-placed to talk us through the escalating sanctions technology nexus that has become so central in today's news. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much, Justine. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Dan. So let's give this discussion some context. China has clearly emerged as a powerhouse of science and technology. How would you describe China's place in the technology world? Have they really become the dominant force? Well, living in Beijing, I certainly have a keen sense of how China's technology uh, progress uh, has uh, really gained a lot of speed in recent years. Now, I think the way that I would think about China's technology scene is something like the following. As you mentioned, I used to work in California, and in a lot of ways, I think the Chinese consumer internet is about on par, if not has surpassed a lot of the elements of what the Californian companies are able to do. And so in fields like mobile internet, in fields like mobile payments, fields like e-commerce, I would say that the experience in China is the best in the world and has in fact surpassed a lot of what these Silicon Valley companies have done. But my view is that if you scratch a little bit underneath the surface, uh, I think the Chinese technological progress has not been so strong or as impressive as one might think. And for that, I would uh, cite uh, two different things. Uh, one, a lot of the companies that we find very dazzling that come out of uh, both Beijing uh, as well as California are mostly companies that are involved in business model innovation and not necessarily in the creation of new IP. So in terms of technology that creates new intellectual property, I would not say that China is uh, fantastically strong. The other thing I would point out is that a lot of the Chinese companies are using fundamentally foreign uh, and especially American tools that are underpinning a lot of their processes. So leading firms like ByteDance and Alibaba and Tencent are still using a lot of American software to actually design their products. And then leading hardware firms like Huawei are using a lot of U.S. semiconductors uh, to manufacture its smartphones as well as its base stations. And so this is where the sanctions discussion becomes a little bit more relevant because these Chinese firms are highly dependent on U.S. technologies. So this technology rise has clearly been met with growing unease in certain parts of the world, noticeably the U.S. actions targeting Chinese firms, the banning of popular Chinese apps, and increasing transparency for U.S.-listed Chinese companies. Dan, what is driving this action? What is the concern of the U.S., and is it only about technology? Well, Justine, that's a very good question, and I think I would put the U.S. concerns in three different buckets. So one bucket is something around national security. And so this is most acute in the case of Huawei, which the U.S. considers to be a national security threat. 
Now, the U.S. government has not made a lot of very public claims about why it considers uh, Huawei to be a national security threat. But in terms of its talk, in terms of its actions, in terms of its diplomacy, considers Huawei to be a threat to national security and that the U.S. is not very keen for Huawei to be able to have access to the networks of either uh, the United States or those of its treaty allies. Another type of concern I would put in here is something around uh, the growing commercial competitiveness of Chinese firms. Now, the evidence I would cite for this in the U.S. is that if you take a look at the USTR Section 301 report, which was the investigation that led to the tariffs of a lot of Chinese goods, it mentioned a lot of industrial plans, especially made in China 2025, which the U.S. alleges is an unfair subsidy uh, scheme that will uh, drive a lot of import substitution of foreign technologies in China. And so there is a little bit of a growing sense of unease that Chinese companies will become much more competitive and aided by the state will drive a lot of foreign companies out of not just China, but also in a lot of their other markets. And then a third bucket of the concerns that the U.S. has, I would say, is something around uh, discordant values. So there are some issues with Chinese technology companies that the U.S. is not very happy if these technology companies have a much bigger presence uh, in the U.S. or, again, in much of the Western world. And so an example of this I would cite is the fact that uh, Chinese companies are much more prone to censoring content that Beijing doesn't like. And the U.S. is not very eager for these Chinese companies to have sort of a global censorship capability based on content that Beijing doesn't want other people to see. Thanks, Dan. That's really helpful by way of just understanding some of the concerns there. And I really want to understand the concerns, you know, how people are responding to this in Beijing. I mean, you live in Beijing. Do people closely follow the sanctions developments coming out of the U.S.? I think there is much more of a sense, and I think at this point, the folks in China, especially anyone working in technology, has a very keen sense of what's coming down the line, especially from the license requirements from the U.S. Department of Commerce. Now, I think one big thing to have happened a few years ago was when the U.S. first designated ZTE to the entity list and then subsequently designated it to the denied persons list. And so ZTE uh, was alleged to have violated uh, some sanctions related to Iran. And so uh, there were some export control issues. And the striking thing was that after ZTE was designated to the denied persons list in 2018, that this very large firm that makes both base stations as well as smartphones pretty much had to collapse because it couldn't access any U.S. technologies. Now, President Trump and President Xi ultimately reached a political solution that allowed CTE to maintain operations, but people had been a little bit on edge uh, at that point. And then a few months later, the U.S. designated Fujian Jinghua to the entity list. Fujian Jinghua is a memory chip maker uh, in Fujian province that's, who's uh, alleged to have misappropriated IP from U.S.-based Micron. So the U.S. blacklisted Fujian Jinghua, and to this day, Fujian Jinghua is uh, sort of struggling. Now, the third big action uh, that got everyone's attention was in May 2019 when Commerce designated Huawei to the entity list. Now, the effects of that designation uh, have been a little bit more complicated, but it was a fairly big move. And I think the notable thing are two. 
First, the U.S. has continued to designate different tranches of Chinese firms to the entity list. These include firms like Hike Vision. Uh, these include firms that are alleged to be doing construction, uh, illegal construction in the South China Sea. But the U.S. has continued to uh, designate more Chinese firms to the entity list. The other noteworthy thing here is that uh, not only is the U.S. Uh, blacklisting Huawei, it has also tightened the particular restriction on Huawei, first in May 2020 uh, and then second in August 2020, which makes it much more difficult for Huawei, which I consider China's uh, most important technology company, to maintain operations. So at this point, uh, everyone is very nervous and keenly watching how the U.S. commerce technology regulations might evolve. So Dan, as a technology analyst, you're working with companies throughout the world. Um, I'm kind of guessing this has really impacted your work. Does your working day look very different now to, say, a few years ago? Well, Justine, I spend a lot more time speaking with lawyers. Uh, so uh, yes, that is uh, a bit different. So, you know, in terms of just basically the work that has become more different in the last few years, a lot more Chinese companies are more concerned about getting onto certain lists uh, maintained by the U.S. government. It seemed like the U.S. restrictions did not have so much bite, especially after Huawei was designated to the entity list in May. People realize that quite a lot of offshore production of U.S. technologies by U.S. firms is not necessarily subject to U.S. export controls. Uh, that is, uh, you know, subject to the EAR. And so people relaxed a little bit then. But after the U.S. tightened restrictions and after the U.S. is looking into putting more Chinese technology companies onto these lists, people are a little bit more nervous. And I think something else worth noting is that, you know, I've been speaking a lot, Justine, about basically these uh, sanctions coming from the uh, Commerce Department. And I think it is still sort of worth noting that some lawyers would say that basically these are not necessarily sanctions. These are just basically license requirements. Um, but, you know, to an ordinary person, this is about blacklisting uh, Chinese firms that might impede their operational capabilities. I think it's also worth thinking through that the U.S. Uh, is now activating the uh, greater sanctions uh, enforcer through the Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control to think more about taking on certain Chinese actions it doesn't like. So these include uh, designating uh, officials uh, that are uh, involved in some ways uh, in uh, Hong Kong. And so people are becoming a little bit more nervous about whether Chinese banks in particular will face secondary sanctions because of activities in Hong Kong. I'm guessing your day does look very different and you've probably just actually become a de facto sanctions lawyer your, yourself in this space, I would think. If we look towards the future, and I think this is, you know, where the analyst element really comes in, Dan, because, you know, this is your role. You have to look towards what does this all mean for moving forwards? So what do you think this means for, you know, how do the expanding sanctions impact on the future development of global technology? Well, uh, the first thing I should say, Justine, is that things are very difficult to predict, uh, especially the future. Now, I think that my contribution uh, from sitting in Beijing and uh, thinking through about how Chinese companies and Chinese policymakers are thinking about these ongoing U.S. restrictions uh, is that, you know, a lot of uh, the strategy for Chinese firms is uh, fairly clear. 
they have had access to U.S. technologies in the past, uh, technologies that they crucially depend on, uh, including a lot of software as well as a lot of semiconductors. And they may not have access to it tomorrow. And so Chinese firms, uh, as well as the Chinese government, are thinking very, very, very hard about how to, as they say, de-Americanize uh, the supply chain. So a lot of that involves uh, trying to uh, not just cultivate other sources of technology coming from European firms or Japanese firms or Taiwanese firms or Korean firms, uh, but also to have a lot more domestic technology so that it is not subject to U.S. controls, especially as U.S. controls are now becoming a lot more extraterritorial. So I think it's worth noting that basically China is, has always taken seriously industrial policy and some degree of import substitution. And these U.S. actions are now really kicking that effort into high gear. So we spoke earlier that you've been based in Silicon Valley. And I remember hearing you talk about how technology travels at the speed of beer. And I don't really understand this saying. Can you explain what does this mean and how is it relevant here in the sanctions environment we're currently operating in? Sure. Well, uh, that little uh, cheeky phrase of mine uh, is uh, something related uh, quite a lot to the import substitution uh, that I've just uh, referenced. So uh, before I get to that, I think I should say that um, you know, the U.S. is now restricting a lot of technologies uh, that Chinese firms needs. And, you know, to think about this a little bit more historically, um, I would say that, you know, the uh, U.S. responded to the rise of technological rivals in the 20th century, namely first the USSR and second Japan, mostly, I would say, by investing more in itself to maintain a technological lead on these two uh, uh, peer competitors. Uh, and now I would say that the U.S. is mostly responding to the rise of China. A lot of Chinese firms are highly dependent on U.S. technologies. The U.S. government is responding to the rise of these Chinese companies, not so much by investing more in itself, but trying to kneecap a lot of China's leading firms. Huawei has been the uh, cheap whipping boy here. And so, you know, the historical gloss on this is I would say that the, instead of realizing its own Sputnik moment, the U.S. is triggering one in China, in which the strategic objective is very, very clear to replace a lot of U.S. technology. Now, uh, where this saying uh, goes into play, you know, uh, having worked in California, is that one thinks in California that basically there are many different paths to making technology work. There usually isn't just a single path to get to a particular technology. In fact, history indicates that a lot of inventions tend to happen at around the same time, and that it is also very difficult for any firm or any country to maintain export controls that are effective in the long run. So, you know, if I think back to when the UK was the leading industrial and technological power in the 18th century, and when the US was an upstart, who was also quite an aggressive, uh, you know, thief of IP, basically the UK imposed export controls on industrial technologies. Uh, I understand that there's a fellow named uh, Samuel Slater, whose uh, name is uh, Slater the Trader in the UK, uh, the father of the uh, American Industrial Revolution in the US, who memorized a bunch of mill designs uh, from the UK and then just built them in Rhode Island. So technology tends to diffuse, it's what it does. Uh, so knowledge tends to travel at the speed of fear. People just chat about these things and then things tend to work. And so I expect that over over the long run, China is engaged in this big technological drive 
uh, it is not so difficult to invent uh, something that has been invented in the past. We know that there's no theoretical issues with inventing a semiconductor that looks like uh, what Chinese firms had access to yesterday. The Chinese task is not to invent anything de novo. It is to replace a lot of the existing uh, technologies today. I think that altogether is not so much of a difficult process. Dan, I love your cheeky phrases, and I love the fact that they help to explain just sanctions and the complexity of sanctions. I may, I may ask you to come up with some more cheeky phrases to help us understand the whole wider sort of world of sanctions at the moment. But if you were to leave listeners with a parting thought around what's been the most surprising aspect to you of the recent sanctions trajectory, what, what most stands out? Well, I think it is that the U.S. is taking on this sanctions in China without what appears to me to be a highly deliberated strategy. Now, as I understand it, the U.S. designated Huawei to the entity list in a moment when President Trump was in a fit of peak, uh, when the Chinese sort of seemed to pull out from trade negotiations in May 2019. And the uh, national security advisor, John Bolton, prevailed upon the president to take on China's leading technology company without a great deal of deliberation. And since then, uh, you know, China is a very large country. It is very deeply uh, interconnected with U.S. firms, uh, as well as you know, firms around the world. I think the surprise uh, from folks in Beijing, and I dare say some folks in D.C., is that the U.S. is doing all sorts of these fairly aggressive actions without having uh, gone through a very great process of public debate, and as well as involvement with industry. And that makes uh, folks a lot more nervous about what's coming down the line. So it's really the decoupling element and what is the longer term aims there? I think I'm taking from, from you on that. Would that be correct? Well, uh, certainly there is a great amount more of political will, I think, in both the U.S. Uh, as well as China, not to be so highly dependent on the other country in terms of medical supplies uh, from the perspective of the United States and then these uh, different types of technologies from the perspective of China. So Dan, I think we're going to be coming back to you sort of on a regular basis. I feel that we just need to be talked through this technology landscape and to help understand this from all different perspectives. Thank you very much, Justine. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Your insights are just exceptional to be able to bring these from Beijing to us and help explain just what has led up to the current situation. It's been so insightful. I've really enjoyed it. I hope listeners have really enjoyed this podcast. As we continue with this series, we will aim to bring input from all corners of the world. So please do sign up for future episodes. I am Justine Morco with ACAMS. Thank you to everyone for joining us today.